We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. This week on Crossing the Lane Lines. But as long as you have people in power that are predominantly white or all white, who don't know what they don't know, these things will never occur, right? And that's the problem, is that all people think that everyone ha- all has the same experience. And so because of that, or the same reality, and so because of that, they can't even think about the other people are experiencing other stuff. Um, a-, a friend of mine on Twitter, Minda Hart, she makes a, she makes a great analogy. She says, you know, it makes me think back when I was riding in the car with my family. And she said the oldest person had to sit on the hump. And so we're going on these long trips, and all three kids are in the back seat. And my parents are in the front seat. My parents have all the leg room. They get the first, all the AC. They get the music. They get everything. Us in the back, we're uncomfortable. We don't have the leg space. We don't have the room. We're all cramped up. And understanding that we're all in the same vehicle, but we all have drastically different experiences. And I really like that analogy because it's true, right? And so the person in the front might be like, what's going on? Why are y'all complaining about the ride? This ride's great. I got leg room. I got, I, I'm always nice and temperature control. I got the AC. I got the heat. What, what, what are you complaining about? And the people in the back are like, yo, this is a shitty-ass ride. I'm on the hump. My head's swinging anytime I want to take a nap. I'm sweating because I'm getting zero AC because the people next to me got the windows. I don't even have that. And so that's what you tend to see with whiteness is there are the people in the front seat who are getting everything, talking about what, what you complain about. This is a great experience. And people of color in the back, people with disabilities, those with LGBT are like, yo, we're on the hump feeling just a crappy-ass ride trying to explain to you, but because your ride is so nice and smooth and comfortable, you don't have a clue. And so that's this whole idea between you don't know what you don't know. And we see a lot of people who don't know what they don't know making rules and policies and statements and have no clue of how it really feels. Simone Manuel is regarded as one of the best freestylers in the world. However, far too often, she is referred to as the best black swimmer in the world. Her blackness is constantly put front and center while at the same time, you never hear someone define Katie Ledecky by her whiteness. Why is that? In part one of a two-part series, we'll speak to former collegiate volleyballer, volleyball coach, and social justice educator, Jen Fry, about the reasons why swimmers like Simone are defined by their race, why white athletes aren't, and what can be done about it. All that and more coming up. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. Simone Manuel, the current Olympic gold medalist and Olympic record holder in the women's 100-meter dash, has constantly had to answer the race question from reporters. She doesn't mind answering, but often wonders why her white counterparts don't get asked the same thing. It's a legitimate point, and she's probably not the only black or brown swimmer to feel this way. 
When can we get to a point that swimmers like Simone, Leah Neal, Reese Whitley, Giles Smith, and others aren't asked to factor in their race as part of the question with respect to their athletic achievements? And let me pose another question. Why don't we ever talk about whiteness? And what would happen if we did? Our guest today might be able to help us sort out some of these questions. Jen Fry is a former D1 volleyball player and coached volleyball for 15 years with stints at Elon University, Washington State, and Norfolk State University. In 2011, she coached the University of Illinois to the NCAA Finals in volleyball, where they were the runner-up. She is the founder of Jen Fry Talks, a social justice education firm that uses conversation to educate and empower those within athletics through an anti-racist lens on issues of race, inclusion, intersectionality, diversity, and equity. Jen Fry, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Hey, thanks for having me. Jen, I usually start these talks off by asking folks when they first began swimming. Now, I'm not going to assume that you don't swim, but I'd like to get a little background story on your volleyball career instead. Yeah, so my swimming, I will tell you, <clears throat> I am an expert doggy paddler. I <laughs> I feel like I doggy paddle with the best of them. I mean, I would say I have no professional or club swimming experience. That I would say when I began swimming, it's actually funny. My mom used to own a hotel. And one day, I would just always jump in the pool and go swimming. And so I don't remember when I was taught to swim. I'd just always jump in the pool. And she tells this story of one time I just jumped in the pool like I normally do. I probably had – I'm from Arizona, so it's 120 degrees. So I most likely had my clothes on, and I just jumped in. And she said a businessman going to his room got so scared that I was going to drown, he jumped into the pool after me in his full suit. And people are coming out yelling like, no, she knows how to swim. She knows how to swim. So that's probably one of the first memories I have of swimming. You know, other than that – um, I will go to the pool, I will swim around, but I have no expert knowledge. Like I said, doggy paddling is about as, as hard as I can go in swimming. Um, my experience in volleyball, you know, it's interesting. I was a three-sport athlete in high school. I think, unfortunately, those are dying out more as club sports are expecting the athletes to specialize earlier on. You're going to miss out on these three-sport athletes that are going to maybe do swimming and running and track and all these different things that teach different muscles, different things. And so I was really lucky that I did volleyball, soccer, and track in high school. And the other two sports, soccer and track, really prepared me in different ways to help me be a better volleyball player. So I played three sports in high school and then ultimately went on and played at a junior college for two years in my hometown and then transferred to a small Division two school in Alabama called the University of Montevallo. And while I was there, I, I was kind of like any other – college athlete trying to figure out what I was going to do. And um, my college coach asked, did I want to coach a volleyball club team of 15-year-olds? And I said, sure. I mean, I wasn't the fondest of kids. I was never a person who babysat or did anything like that. And so um, I was like, okay, I'll, it's extra money. I'll do it. And the, I was going to be the assistant to, like, one of the worst teams. And it turned out that the head coach quit, like, the next day. So I then became the head coach of this team. I've never coached kids at all. I ended up being the coach, and I really liked that. I really liked that this was a vehicle I could really help change lives. And so that's what got me into coaching for about 15 years, was just my club coach literally asked if I wanted to coach a 15s team. I'm wondering if you could talk about what your organization does. It sounds like it's very vital, given the current climate 
that we find ourselves in, not only in general, but in particular with regards to sports? Yeah, so kind of a background. Um, when I was at Elon, I started to really get more involved in the conversation on race. And um, like I said, I grew up in Arizona, so I grew up in a majority minority city. Um, my volleyball coach was a black female. My track coach was a black male. My soccer coach was a Latinx male. So I always had people in power who looked like me. That was not the norm. I was never the only one on my team. I never had that feeling. And when I got to Elon, I'm not sure about a year in, I just started paying more attention to the experience of my black athletes. Um, I was really set on recruiting more diversity to the team. I started paying attention and I kind of joined the committee and really started to pay attention to how we're, how we were being taught about um, race, the conversations about race were not, were not what I wanted it to be or how I want it to be talked about. I thought there could be a more um, open way that wasn't as superficial to have this conversation. I felt like we didn't really get to the meat and potatoes of it, right? Or if, if you're vegan or vegetarian, the meat or the tofurkey and potatoes, if you must. And so I was just like, you know what, I just, I want to talk about it differently. I want to bring more things to the surface that many people don't. And so I I was coaching, and it got to be a point where I was like, I don't know if this is still the vehicle I want um, to use. And so I kind of started checking my emotions. When we won, how was I feeling? When, I, when we lost, how I was how was I feeling? And it got to be the point where I was like, yeah, I, I just don't think this is it anymore. I was reading a lot. I was educating myself. And literally I gave myself a deadline of saying, November 1st, if I don't say something, if I don't resign then, then I'm staying in volleyball. And that's it, period. And it just came to the point November 1st, I said, yeah, I'm resigning at the end of the season. And my head coach and assistant looked at me. I looked at myself. I'm like, did that really come out? Because it's easy to say it to friends. It's not as easy when you say it to people who pay you, right, (laughs) who give you those benefits. And so I just knew it was what I had to do. I I didn't know what it was going to look like at all. If you had told me in 2015 – when I left coaching that this is what my company would, A, that I'd have a company, or B, this is what it would look like, I would have been like, you're out of your mind. I just, I had no clue, and I thought I was going to work maybe as a student athlete development person in college or, or work at a, in, somewhere in a higher ed institution, and I didn't know it would be kind of running my own company. And I just want to talk about things in a different way, um, and that's what I've realized is that people also want that, that they got tired of the superficial conversations. They got tired of leaving a conversation saying, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to work on? Like, they just got tired of that. And that to me was the most refreshing part of like, you can talk about the way you want to and still be successful. I had an opportunity to watch a YouTube video of you giving a TED talk at, I believe, Duke University. And one of the things that I loved seeing was you explaining racial social justice education through high fives. I'm wondering if you could speak about these social justice high fives and their impact on your audience. Yeah, I mean, of course, this was pre-COVID, so <laughs> keeping that in mind. But I think it's a difference when, like, you have a physical connection with someone, right? In, in volleyball, I'm not sure about swimming, but it's all about high fives and smack each other on the butt. You know, that's, you see in basketball and soccer, like, it's a very, we're very physical in our sport. And I feel like it's easy when people walk into a room that it's like they already feel like their guards are going up, right? What am I going to think about? What am I going to talk about? Who am I going to talk about? Who am I going to talk to? All these things kind of bring up these guards unconsciously. And so the goal of that is just to kind of maybe let it down a little bit, is to have a physical connection with people. And it's really fascinating how excited people get, get when you're like, hey, give that person next to you a high five. Like people get so excited about it. 
And that's one thing that's been really fun to watch in my sessions, again, of course, pre-COVID, is asking people to give each other a high five. And these people I mean are giving them, if they know each other, they're giving chest bumps, huge high fives. And that physical connection gets them a little bit more excited. And to me, it just bridges a gap. Right, it bridges that that gap of two separate people. Hey, we gave a high five. Now maybe we can talk a little bit more than we were before. USA Swimming, like so many other national sports bodies for amateur athletics, has its own DEI department. Its stated goal is the following: quote, USA Swimming is committed to a culture of inclusion and opportunity. We strive to create equity by providing resources specific to the needs of our members. In the context of swimming, diversity is the invitation to our sport. Inclusion is making sure our sport is welcoming. And equity is ensuring all members have what they need to be successful. Close quote. As good as all this sounds, it's far from the case, though. USA Swimming's black membership is an abysmal 1.6%. Most of the black people that work in upper management are working on DEI as if to say they aren't even capable of working in any other department. And the organization's tepid response to a former member's involvement and indictment in the January 6th insurrection has left a lot of black folk very disillusioned about the organization's desire to live up to their mission that I quoted above. Jen Fry, in your opinion, how can they be confronted on these issues that have stemmed from sustained systemic racism? Well, I mean, I think, like, you know, whenever people write their DEI statements, I'm always like, well, what does it mean? A, who is writing the statement? B, what does it mean? Because many times you're going to have predominantly white people writing the statement for a predominantly white audience. They're not, like, you. I will see black and brown people writing the statement. They're like, oh, that's too radical. Oh, are you sure we want to say that? Oh, 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 maybe we can say this and maybe we can say this. And it completely, the whole point of it is gone. And so with this, I really say, what does this mean? So the first part of it is diversity is an invitation to our sport. What does that mean, an invitation to our sport? Does it also include the historical ramifications of black people literally being pushed out of swimming, of pools and areas that were mixed, that were closed down because black people wanted to go swim? Does it talk about the episode of um, black people swimming and the white hotel owner pouring acid in there? What, does, what do we mean by invitation to our sport? If you want to have a true invitation to our sport, then you start with the elderly black people and teaching them how to swim. Because the ramifications go generations. You can't invite a black boy or black girl to swim and they have parents and grandparents who not only don't know how somebody are afraid of swimming and have grandparents that have those historical connotations because we assume that the things that occurred with swimming are, are centuries ago. No, there are black grandparents that can give you memories of being kicked out and punished for swimming in places that were predominantly white. So when we talk about this invitation to our sport, who is it inviting and how are we inviting them? How, how, how? You put in a link on your website saying, hey, we have swimming lessons. That's not shit. How are you truly inviting people that have this horrible, horrible historical memory of how they were treated when they tried to swim? 
And then you connect the dotted line to when black people do try and swim, white coaches, white people don't have an understanding of black hair. And because they have no understanding of black hair, when black athletes or people are like, well, I don't really want to swim because I just spent $300 on my hair, these kids get essentially harassed, jokes are made that make them not want to swim. Like we have to think about all of those things if we're talking about, first off, the invitation. Who are we inviting and how are we inviting them? I think that's a really, really crucial part. The second thing is inclusion is making sure our sport is welcoming. How are you making sure it's welcoming? If black and brown people can't talk about the issues within swimming, how are you making it welcoming? Like who, to who? Who thinks it's welcoming? Is it white people are like, well, I don't understand why black people don't want to come swim. It's really welcoming. My, my friend John, his black son comes and he has a great time. How, are the, how is it welcoming to who is it welcoming to? Because we talk about, like, these are really general things that don't give the who and how. Inclusion is making, um, and then equity is ensuring that all members have what they need to be successful. For me, as a black person to be successful, needs, my coaches need to understand their whiteness. Like, that's what will make me successful. That's a, a huge component. And that component many times is left out. For me to be successful, it needs to talk about what things in swimming, what things with coaches, what things within the administration are making it unsuccessful. And people don't ever start with that. They don't start with the ground level of how is our sport not welcoming? How is our sport not actually creating invitation to everyone? How is our sport not ensuring that everyone has everything they need to be successful? How? Because if we start talking about how, it's, how we're not doing this stuff, then we're going to think more critically about then the things we need to do. But as long as you have people in power that are predominantly white or all white who don't know what they don't know, these things will never occur. Right, and that's the problem, is that all people think that everyone ha all has the same experience. And so because of that, or the same reality, and so because of that, they can't even think about the other people experiencing other stuff. Um, a, a friend of mine on Twitter, Minda Hart, she makes, a, she makes a great analogy. She says, you know, it makes me think back when I was riding in the car with my family. And she said the oldest person had to sit on the hump. And so we're going on these long trips, and all three kids are in the back seat. And my parents are in the front seat. My parents have all the leg room. They get the first, all the AC. They get the music. They get everything. Us in the back, we're uncomfortable. We don't have the leg space. We don't have the room. We're all cramped up. And understanding that we're all in the same vehicle, but we all have drastically different experiences. And I really like that analogy because it's true, right? And so the person in the front might be like, what's going on? Why are y'all complaining about the ride? This ride's great. I got leg room. I got, I, I'm always nice in temperature control. I got the AC. I got the heat. What, what, what are you complaining about? And the people in the back are like, yo, this is a shitty-ass ride. I'm on the hump. My head's swinging anytime I want to take a nap. I'm sweating because I'm getting zero AC because the people next to me got the windows. I don't even have that. And so that's what you tend to see with whiteness is that they're the people in the front seat who are getting everything, talking about what, what you complain about. This is a great experience. And people of color in the back, people with disabilities, those with LGBT are like, yo, we're on the hump. 
spilling just a crappy-ass ride trying to explain to you, but because your ride is so nice and smooth and comfortable, you don't have a clue. And so that's this whole idea between you don't know what you don't know. And we see a lot of people who don't know what they don't know making rules and policies and statements and have no clue of how it really feels. You talk about whiteness a lot. I believe you're quoted as saying, quote, whiteness in sports is stopping us from pushing everything forward, close quote. Now, swimming in its present form is seen as a white sport. And although this is obvious, whiteness is never brought up. For example, folks will talk about Michael Phelps as a great swimmer, but not a great white swimmer. But if we're talking about Simone Manuel, her blackness is often referred to in conversations in the media and amongst people in swimming in the swimming world in general. I'm wondering if you can speak more on the issue of whiteness in sports, and in particular, how we can move past using blackness to define swimmers like Simone. Well, I mean, I think the biggest issue is the fact that when we talk about the difference between black and white bodies and how they're talked about, right, anything excellent that a white body does, it's expected. Michael Phelps. They talked about how he, he was able to, like, breathe differently or had this thing with his oxygen. I don't remember what it was. And it was just like, he is just an amazing athlete. And, you know, yeah, he has that, but it's just part of his human nature. And then you see other people, black women, that excel because of certain things, and they're looked at as animalistic or they need to be toned down. Right? Simone Biles. Simone Biles is always moving, Right? is moving the ladder up every single time. And then it, when she does something, then all of a sudden you see gymnastics saying, okay, well, we're going to have to avoid that. We, we can't have people doing that because no one else can do it. Right? We saw, um, I think her name was Bonalee, the French swimmer, or I mean the, mm-hmm. the French ice skater, who was doing like back, back clips and all that stuff way before, or the figure skater. And they stopped having her do that. So every time black bodies excel in some way, we're being told, no, we can't do that. And we're being penalized if we do that. Like Simone Bonnelly would literally be penalized for doing the backflip because it was dangerous to other people. And so black bodies are always going to be stopped when they're, when they're going for excellence, always. And so I think naming that aspect, when we talk about whiteness and white bodies, whiteness is always looked at as the norm, the foundation. And that's why people have a difficulty of talking about something that is so invisible that they never had to think about. I mean, it literally is you, or like the analogy is like a fish not realizing they're in water and that they're always wet. When you live in that, you don't even realize it's always existing. And I think that's the thing about whiteness. And I really think, is it Simone Manuel? Is that her name? Mm -hmm. I think that when people ask about her being a black swimmer, I think she literally should ask about, well, what do you ask white people about being a white swimmer? Mm. And literally put the question back on them and see their response. Because, like, that's the type of pushback we we need to have. Yes, we celebrate the first black swimmer, the first X, Y, and Z. But the reality of the situation is that many times those questions aren't 
It's not about celebrating, like, this is the first black swimmer to do X, Y, Z. It just has, like, this idea of talking about being black and swimming, which there's no point. Like, what, what does that, what correlation is that there? And I think it also is about journalists having more intent with their questions. Um, the thing with Naomi Osaka really has brought that forward, right, has brought forward the aspect of, like, the really problematic things that journalists ask and how people are so affronted with her being like, yeah, I'm not going to talk to the media during the French Open. No. People are, how dare you? What? <laughs> it's like, why? Like, y'all be asking such rude questions that have no, like, empathy, no intent, have nothing. Like, you didn't think it out and say, okay, that person just asked this question. Let me not ask that question with a slightly different word. I can't remember who it was, but I remember there was, like, a, ten, a black tennis player who couldn't get out of, like, the first round, and he was sitting there sobbing, and the journalist kept pelting him with questions. And he is, like, sobbing. And it's, like, we got to be better, right? Journalists got to be better than that. And so I think when we're talking about race, is that journalists got to ask better questions that have that at least center empathy, and also acknowledge that when you're talking about race, that there's a white element that is never discussed that needs to be discussed. Because I guarantee if, she, if, if Simone Manuel is like, well, you know, what are you asking the white swimmers about being white, that shit is going gonna, is gonna to be frozen in time. Because they've never had to think about that. You know, your work sounds really incredible. I'm wondering what the response has been by folks, not only white folk, but also black and brown to what you've been doing. You know, it's actually been pretty cool because the one thing I center is the impact and trauma on black and brown people. That's who I center when I do this work. I am impact-centered, not intent-centered. And so I say that because what impact-centered means is that I don't allow people to just all opinions are not welcome in my sessions. And I say that because when we have this aspect of like, well, we, we need to allow everyone to talk, everyone to have their opinions, we're not acknowledging that some people's opinions can be very harmful. Like, it's not being acknowledged. Because we don't, we don't center impact. We want to center everyone. Well, they have good intent. They didn't mean this. And they're saying some really harmful things, right? It's like if I was... In a session, somebody was like, well, you know, my opinion is that the Holocaust didn't happen. That's a harmful, violent opinion. That should not be allowed. Right? Like, there are, and so I center impact. And so that is a key thing to me. Because black and brown people don't really get protected in DEI sessions. Well, we just, you know, they didn't mean it that way. You know, well, they, that's just their opinion. They're just playing devil's advocate. They're this, and they're saying really harmful things. I'm like, no, that's not allowed. I'm censoring the impact on black and brown people. And so, you know, the one thing I, I think what I hear that really helps me is that black and brown people will say thank you. You know, I've been on a million DEI sessions, but thank you for your honesty. Thank you for protecting us. Thank you for what you say. 
like that is where I center it. Knowing that folks understand that I am there to talk about this, but also make sure that they're protected. So even if it means in a session, I'm doing breakout sessions and someone messages me and is like, hey, the person I chatted with said some really harmful things. Then I'm going to make sure the next breakout sessions, they're partnered with me. Because I don't know, I'm not going to allow them to create harm anywhere. So that means that they're going to talk with Jen Fry. And then what I hear from white people, you know, I hear both sides. I hear, you know, the ones which are like, yeah, that blew my mind. I have a lot of self-reflection I have to do. I have a lot of self-reflection. Cool. And then I'll hear the other side of, you know, you don't allow opinions. This is not objective, blah, blah, blah. You're being divisive. Okay, that's fine. Like, okay, that's your opinion. Everyone's allowed to, okay. Right? If me talking about something that affects every aspect of a black or brown person's life is being defensive, divisive, so, so be it. Of me talking about this thing that affects where I work, if I have a kid, if they die, me in pregnancy, my earnings, prison, it's everything is being divisive, so, so be it. Like, I'm not going to argue with you on that because that's the way you've been socialized by your white parents, 100%. That's how you've been socialized by your white network. To name difference is being divisive. And that's how, like, as a society, any type of difference that we talk about is quote-unquote divisive. Race, LGBT, why are they talking about that? No one needs to talk about it. People with disabilities, right? Whenever we talk about something that's different, it's being divisive. And so the name, okay, that's fine. But I'm going to keep being impact-centered and protecting black and brown folks in my sessions. Finally, as we wrap up this show, I want to ask you one last question. The Tokyo Olympic Games are fast approaching, and the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has stated that they will allow no protest of any kind on the podium or anywhere in the Olympic Village. They are willing to let people wear signs that say love or unity or something innocuous like that, but you can't wear t-shirts saying Black Lives Matter or remember George Floyd or thus and so. Jen Fry, in your personal opinion, what is your view on Rule 50 that is applying to these issues regarding the anti-protest stance that the IOC has taken? I mean, I think it's completely bullshit, right? 100% is bullshit. And we saw the effects of in 68 of what occurred, right? We saw the effects. Um, I think it was Gwen Berry, um, a, track and, a black track and field athlete, at an event she protested and there was some, some stuff that occurred to her. I can't remember exactly the details. I think it's bullshit, right? And I, I think that, like, the Summer Olympics is – it's going to be predominantly black and brown people, right, if we think about it. I mean, I'd like to see the demographics on it. But it's going to be way more black and brown countries, way more black and brown athletes. Actually, I need to do research on that. Thank you very much. Um, and I think, like, I think it's bullshit. I think every single person should come out with a Black Lives Matter shirt, every single person. I think when people win awards, and I'm not talking about just black, I'm talking about black, white, everyone. Because, right, allyship has consequences. I work with Dr. Victoria Ferris, and that's her, my, my favorite line of hers. Allyship has consequences. So all of these white athletes who are talking about they're down with the cause, Black Lives Matter, they post it on their Instagram and Twitter. Okay, put your money where your mouth is. 
Allyship has consequences. You want to talk that you support Black Lives Matter? Well, this is the time to do it on the biggest stage. What are you willing to lose? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if the whole U.S. team comes out wearing those shirts, black, white, whoever it is, Latinx, Asian, they don't get stations. Like, that's the thing about it. Allyship has consequences. And that's what people don't want to acknowledge. You cannot do this work and not have consequences. Well, you can't do it well. And this is where we see the rubber meets the road and who's really about it. Because if you're going to post BLM and all those things on your Instagram, but when it comes time and somebody says, hey, wear this shirt, and you're like, well, I don't want to, you ain't about that life. Take that out of your Instagram. Just take it out. I don't care if you worked for four or five years for 2020 to to go to Olympics, right? Black people have to deal with they, – they also had to work five years, and they've had to deal with this their whole life. So this is where allyship has consequences of what are you willing to do. Because I'm telling you, the whole U.S. team comes out with that. What are they going to do? Like, I, I, what, what are they really going to do? And I think this is something that right now it's going to be huge with Tokyo. It's going to be huge. Who does it? What consequences occur? Because everybody's talking about it. And at this point, you got to decide. And I think that rule, it, because what they try and do with these rules is they try and go to the very end of the spectrum, right? So what if someone comes out with a swastika? What are we going to do then? Like they try and use like these end of the spectrum examples. To then say, well, it's not really about them. It's just that we don't want these things. Stop. Ain't no one come out with no swastika. Right? Ain't no one come out like, stop it. And if they do, then their country can handle them. Let their country handle them. Because they're embarrassing their country on that on the biggest stage in the world. But this aspect of making, again, making Black Lives Matter political, that is whiteness. If we can make it a political thing, then now we can find different ways to stop it. And that's the aspect of it. The fact that saying Black Lives Matter is political is, is ridiculous. I hope every single track athlete gets on that podium with a Black Lives Matter um, shirt on, every single one. And we are going to have to leave it there. Our guest has been Jen Fry, a former D1 volleyball player who coached volleyball for 15 years with stints at Elon University, Washington State, and Norfolk State University. In 2011, she coached the University of Illinois to the NCAA Finals in volleyball where they were the runner-up. She is the founder of Jen Fry Talks, a social justice education firm that uses conversation to educate and empower those within athletics through an anti-racist lens on issues of race, inclusion, intersectionality, diversity, and equity. And we will have a link to her site for our listeners. Jen Fry, we wish you and your family health and safety during these difficult times in our country. And thank you so much for joining us today on Crossing the Line Lines. Thank you for having me. And now we've come to a new segment of the show that myself and my producer, Mrs. Chippy, have called the... Shut the fuck up, Donnie. Okay, so the inaugural Donnie Award goes to all the apologists of Cleet Keller. Keller, as many of you know, is a former Olympian who was part of the white supremacist mob that stormed the Capitol trying to overturn the results of a legitimate 
and multi-certified election. Former coaches and teammates stated that he had fallen on hard times and was formerly homeless, not allowed to see his kids, and all this seemingly led him to have a mental breakdown. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. But first off, let's clear the air of something. There are many people that have mental health issues, but they aren't racist. There are tons of folks that suffer from mental health issues and don't storm the Capitol. What these defenders of Keller are saying is that his mental health issues can excuse away his actions, which were trying to disenfranchise black and brown people that voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And let's not forget how the sports media acted in all of this. A recent guest on the show, Dr. Johanna Mellis, put it very succinctly in an article she co-wrote entitled, Cleet Keller is not an aberration. USA Swimming has a racism problem. And I'm going to read a part of this for you. Quote, sports media is complicit in this as well. It has repeatedly erased these broader structural aspects of Keller's actions and treated his choice to take part in a white supremacist coup as an individual problem. A fall. They spoke to former teammates and coaches, almost all of whom were white men and some of the biggest names in the sport, who to varying degrees spoke of Keller as a decent guy with a great heart who got lost. Got lost? He didn't get lost. He was sliding down a far right QAnon rabbit hole. Lost is when I turn on to the 283 way instead of the I-80. Lost is what I say when I can't find my house keys. He didn't seem lost when he found himself in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Nor did he seem lost when he decided to go from a rally that riled up him and thousands of his MAGA buddies to the Capitol. He knew exactly where he was going. And let's not forget this very salient point. If these so-called patriots were black and brown folk that tried to stunt... If a black Olympian like Cullen Jones was seen roaming the corridors of the Capitol with a rioting mob, and if black and brown citizens had even dented one of those barricades, there'd be blood in the streets. So to all those apologists, former coaches, and swimmers who are sweeping his involvement of an insurrection on our nation's capital that left five dead and over 140 Capitol Police injured, we just like to say... Shut the fuck up, Donnie. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for crossing the lane lines. Signing off.